It's time for Cadillac On Call on News Radio 610 KONA. It's your chance to learn valuable health information right here in our community. Now, the host of Cadillac On Call, here's Jim Hall. Hey, friends, welcome to Cadillac On Call, presented by the Cadillac Foundation. Each week, we have the chance to connect with you about the latest health news and information within our community and our region. On today's program, we'll see where COVID-19 stands in our community and if the relaxing of mask requirements, and especially uh, the news out this week that uh, masks will no longer be required on most airline travel or public transportation, uh, and figure out how that will impact us going forward on the level of transmission. Later in our program, we'll learn about the incidence of vascular disease and what we can all do to avoid that. But first, we welcome to the program Heather Hill at the Benton Franklin Health District to get the very latest on the continued moderation of COVID-19 in our region. And I know, Heather, the trend has been uh, very good over the last several weeks. Hospitalizations, I know, continue to be very low and stable at a low number. And the case rates, I guess, uh, probably not as important in your measurement. But what are, what is the current message for the public as we sit here uh, working toward the first part of May? Sure, Jim. You know, I would say the current message is don't let your guard down. Enjoy the low case rates that we're certainly experiencing right now. But also understand exactly how that data is collected and, and kind of thinking back to um, which tests actually make it into the reporting system and which don't. So it's the PCR test that is the um, most reliable data point, but we also have to realize that fewer and fewer people are going in for actual PCR testing. The uh, increase in use of the in-home antigen test kits certainly come into play. Those are not required to be reported to us. So, you know, again, as we look at our data, we're, we're seeing it go down, and we're certainly hearing also anecdotally across our community from our medical providers that COVID is certainly at a much lower rate, significantly lower rate than it was even just a couple of months ago. And then we also look at our hospitalization rate. It is certainly in the right direction and and we're not seeing any concerns with regard to stressing our hospital system. So we, we, again, look at all of these data points and go, okay, right now things are going very, very good in the community for us. But, again, we can't let our guard down because we have seen pockets, such as on the west side of the state and other communities across the United States, where that, that sub-variant of Omicron, the B2A, is causing a blip up in statistics and starting to show an increase in disease and hospitalization. So we know the potential to have another surge, whether it's a small surge or a big surge, is certainly a potential out there. But right now, um, things are looking good. We also need to remember there are other diseases out there, and we've noticed over the last few weeks an increase in cases of rhinovirus through some of the panels that physicians order, medical providers order on people who are experiencing respiratory symptoms. Maybe they tested negative for COVID, so what is actually causing their cold-like symptoms and we're seeing an increase in some rhinovirus activity, which, again, symptoms, it may be a different virus, but the symptoms mimic COVID uh, very, very similarly. So uh, 
if you're having cold-like symptoms, if you're having COVID-like symptoms, it's still a really good idea to do a test. One of those at-home test kits are great. And um, see if it is COVID because that lets you know um, who you need to talk to if it does come up positive that there would potentially have been an exposure to a loved one, a friend, or a coworker if it does come up positive for COVID. So just bear in mind, enjoy the low rates, but also keep an eye on what is happening statistically in the community, and then that will help guide what you and your family need to do for mitigation strategies should we start to see that increase again. And I understand in just preparing for the program today uh, around the state of Washington, as you touched on, the numbers in western Washington of cases are ticking up a little bit, which I know historically throughout this pandemic, what we have seemed to learn is it seems to hit western Washington a little bit sooner than it does in our part of the state. So I guess if if there might be a, a bit of a tick up in cases in that part of the state, we may see that in the coming week or so. And I guess the fortunate part on the second part of that question is you mentioned the subvariant. It sounds like that's the predominant types of strain that is uh, producing cases now, which is a good thing as it's mostly mild for people that are, uh, if they get it. Right, right. And that's definitely what is happening on the west side of the state. It, it's primarily that subvariant. And again, here in our community, through the testing done at the Department of Health, that is the predominant variant in our community as well. But just like what you said, uh, we watch other communities, and if we know it's increasing in other communities, there's a high probability that we will start to see it increase a little bit here as well. And I know relative to the testing, uh, one of the things uh, one of your colleagues was on with us a few weeks ago and talking about how they're testing, able to test the wastewater and almost maybe get a more um, at the head end of when cases are are more of a predictor of of the level of of virus in the community. Where does that stand and how soon might we start uh, seeing some data come out on that? Sure. Right now there is certainly data available on the Center for Disease Control website And we are working through um, just how to give that information on our website. So hopefully in the very, very near future, I will be able to report back how how the community can actually see what what is happening in our community with regard to the wastewater testing. But I think the important takeaway when you start looking at data like that is it doesn't exactly give us the case count because it's really a a pooled risk of a a variety of people and you're testing the wastewater to see um, not only how much virus is there, is there an increase in viral count, and also it's a great way to find out if there are other variants as they look at the type of of, um, COVID that is actually coming through the waste system. So, again, it's another tool amongst many tools that we've certainly Um, learned about during the last two, two and a half years to help scientists, epidemiologists, and public health monitor disease burden in the community. So it's, it's not giving us all the answers as far as exactly what case count would be, but it certainly guides us in doing some, you know, messaging if we start to see some increases. And it's also being noted that when we start in, in seeing that increase in the wastewater of COVID, 
soon thereafter, there tends to be uh, an increase in hospitalization. So I know it, it, it will help us predict and plan for the potential increase in, um, in our hospitalization rates for COVID. And I know you touched on the current incidence of cases, and certainly as uh, the cases get down to a level that we all like to see, and and mostly the hospitalizations. I know at Cadillac, I think the numbers have been running consistently in the single digits, and I know the ICU strain is is literally uh, been at zero, or if if there's any, maybe one or two cases in the ICU. But what is the level of concern currently? Is it still that older, the vulnerable population, and then the elderly population that is of most concern to you? Yeah, absolutely. And when we look at where our outbreaks are happening, because we are continuing to see an occasional outbreak, they are typically happening in those long-term care facilities. And when we look at, you know, drill down to exactly who got infected, what their risk factors were, and what their vaccination status was, typically it's the person who did not get their boosters. And so we're seeing strong evidence that not only do you need to get your original, you know, series of vaccines, but getting those boosters and now a second booster for 50 and older is recommended. That seems to be one of the key indicators as to health outcomes should you catch catch COVID when you're living in a long-term care facility. Or if you live in a long-term care facility, are you going to catch COVID if it gets in there? People who are boosted tend to fare much, much better. And if you would, maybe on the current status of vaccination, I suppose it's it's a tiered system almost, if you will, for those that there probably are still people that aren't even vaccinated at all. So if they get start getting the series of vaccinations, that's going to increase their ability to withstand. And then those that have gotten the two get their first booster. Those that are eligible uh, and have gotten a booster get that second booster. Is is that kind of the easy way to explain it short of trying to, to get too scientific about all of this? Right. That, that's a perfect explanation, Jim. You know, get your primary series, and once you're done with that, then head into the boosters that are recommended because we really do find that, that vaccination is probably the best way to prevent hospitalization and death from, from COVID. It's been well proven throughout this pandemic that people who are vaccinated and now people who are vaccinated and boosted really do fare so much better. What, if they are to catch this um, virus. We're visiting with Heather Hill at the Benton Franklin Health District. If you'd like more information on the current status of COVID or any of the public health uh, issues of the current springtime going into the summer, go to bfhd.wa.gov. We have one more segment of Heather's time to share with us. We'll talk a little bit about the importance of masks and where people should get guidance on when they should be wearing masks, and we'll do that right after this. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Here again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Catholic on Call, presented by the Catholic Foundation. We're visiting with Heather Hill at the Benton Franklin Health District and getting the latest on COVID-19 as we work our way through springtime in the Tri-Cities area. 
And the good news is we're continuing to see very manageable COVID-19 rates. Hospitalization rates in our community continue to be very low. At Cadillac, where I work, I know the numbers have been in the single digits over the past couple of weeks, which is also great news. Heather, I know the big news earlier this week across the country is that there has been some relief in the requirement of wearing masks on places like airplanes and, and federal public transportation. And I guess that's probably the biggest place is that people on air travel are no longer, in most cases, required to wear masks. And and I know I traveled here just a few weeks ago via air, clear across the country, and I think I'm going to continue to wear masks, my own personal preference. But maybe if you would just talk about not so much when and where, but why it's important to consider continuing to wear a mask if you're on an airplane or in a crowded space or on public transportation. I think that's a really important thing that you need to think through is, is really what kind of risk are you facing? You know, it sounds really good that we've moved to the point where masks aren't going to be required on air traffic, but uh, you also need to consider the risk of the environment you're in. Um, are you entering an area where there's a higher rate of COVID, where you might be exposed to more people on the plane with COVID? And you also need to look at your own health, your own vaccination status, and take all of these things into consideration when you choose to wear a mask or not to wear a mask. And also remember, that's, that's the United States rules. And as people are traveling internationally, they may enter areas where masks may still be required in certain countries. So one needs to be conscientious of once they leave the United States, the rules could possibly change for the countries you're entering. So make sure you're aware of what those are. But back to your own personal risk, that's what people need to consider is um, when you go into these environments, Look at what the case rate is in the community. How much disease burden is there? What's the environment you're going into? Is it a closed and tight environment like in an airplane where people um, can spew organisms and they may linger in the air for a long period of time? Somebody described it to me once like, um, you know, somebody smoking in a room. Yes, you get the smoke right then and there next to the person, but even as it spreads around the environment, you still have the effects of the smoke. Well, the same thing can happen if somebody is spewing COVID organism into an enclosed space or a crowded space. So take that into consideration when you're making your own personal choices, whether to wear a mask or not. You know, masks throughout COVID we've talked a lot about and which are the best and we know that the N95 or the KN95 are the absolute best and a, and a well-fitted one because it protects you from externally what's coming at you and it does protect others from what's coming out of you. So if you're going into a high-risk environment, we would really recommend you consider an, a KN or an N95 mask. And we've seen people use these even pre-COVID. I've flown quite a bit, both um, domestic and international, and you certainly do see people who would wear masks for protection because they likely had some kind of underlying health condition that they felt being in a closed environment put them at risk. So that KN90 or that N95 mask is their absolute best protection. Then you get into the procedure or the surgical mask. That certainly offers some protection. It's not as good a protection. If you have COVID and you're wearing a mask like that, it's like putting your finger over the um, the hose. You can stop some of the flow of the water coming out so it doesn't get things quite so wet. 
Same thing with a mask. When you've got a mask on, you're slowing the spread of what's in your nose and mouth coming out into the, the environment. And it does offer some limited protection to what you might be exposed to in the environment as well. And then we move into the fabric masks, and we know those are probably the least protective. They're not as regulated. They're not standard. Some are light fabric, some are heavier fabric, and we know that those are the least protective. But again, you need to choose what your level of protection needs to be for your family and your personal needs and, and think those through carefully, plan ahead for them, tuck a mask uh, in your pocket, in your purse, in your briefcase so you have one handy should you get into a situation where, you know, I, I think today's a good day to stick that mask on. I have just a couple of minutes left, and I have two two areas I'd like you to address before we adjourn uh, with your time. And, and one of them is on the, just to give a brief description, if you would, of what do you mean by immunocompromised? Who, who is at risk when they're immunocompromised? You know, a lot of people um, have various, whether it's illnesses or have had procedures or cancer treatments, stem cell transplants, where their immune system isn't able to fight off disease like somebody whose immune system is is perfectly fine. We know that people who are diabetic tend to not do as well if they get infections. So there's a lot of reasons why humans become immunocompromised. And those are the ones that if they catch what for a perfectly healthy person would be an inconsequential viral infection, for that person, unfortunately, their immune system is such that it can't offer the protection and it can turn very, very bad. It can cause hospitalizations. And unfortunately, as we've seen, it, it can cause death um, in many of these circumstances where these people are immunocompromised. So in that case, again, it's the people with the current health issues that you describe, but also the, the older of our population that that if you're going to go visit, say, a grandparent or just a friend that uh, might be uh, not only immunocompromised, but let more vulnerable to, to consider right, where Right, right, because age does that. As we age, our immune system isn't as good as it was when we were much younger, and so the simple aging process makes us more vulnerable because our immune system isn't as robust at fighting off infections as it used to be. So, yeah, if you're going to go visit um, an elderly person, and elderly is sounding much, much younger these days to me. but um, I'm in that category. (laughs) (laughs) So if you're going to go visit that person, by all means, consider the risk you're putting them at, and you might want to slip a mask on. Make sure you have some home test kits. Again, they're free. They're available from both the Washington State Department of Health and the federal government, delivered right to your door. Have a stash on hand so that, you know, we're we're going to this little gathering. How about if we all just just test and make sure that at least right now, here and now, we know we're not going to put this person we love at risk. And finally, before we adjourn with your time, if someone is a new COVID diagnosis, and you touched on with this variant, the new cases are mostly of the mild variety. So if someone gets a new diagnosis, what should they do in, as far as to protect not only themselves, but their, their family members and close uh, family members? Sure. We encourage people to absolutely stay at home, stay isolated for that five days from onset of illness or positive test. 
and then continue to wear um, a well-fitted covering over your nose and your mouth for the next five days. That way you're doing your, your due diligence to protect those vulnerable people who are around you. So what you're saying, say if I happen to test positive tonight, and I, I need to isolate for five days, and then after the symptoms are gone, five more days of wearing a mask when I'm out around people? <laughs> Right, right. Even if, uh, you know, you can still have some lingering symptoms or even if the symptoms are gone, it's still a really good idea to wear that mask a bit longer, knowing that that organism can harbor in your respiratory tract asymptomatically even after um, you think you're just fine. And it's, again, maybe just a final comment that you touched on is uh, you're starting to see these respiratory viruses, and that might be just because of we're not wearing those masks. I mean, I think you shared throughout the course of the pandemic, flu has been almost non-existent. So maybe it's just a natural evolution if, as as the mitigation st- standards go down, uh, these types of viruses start to come right. up. Right. We're seeing an increase in flu activity, an increase in cold-like symptoms that are actually testing out to be rhinovirus and honestly, that's when we would recommend wearing masks anyways, whether it's COVID or a, a common cold. It's a really good time to put that mask on, protect those vulnerable people, because even the common cold can kill people. Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. Again, if you'd like more information or to order some of those test kits, you can go to the health district's website at bfhd.wa.gov. Back with the second half of Catholic on Call right after this. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Once again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Catholic On Call, presented by the Catholic Foundation. And if you missed any part of our program, Catholic On Call is available via podcast. Just search Catholic On Call wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Now, we've spent so much time the last couple of years on COVID-19. We've also, as things have eased with the incidence of COVID in our community, wanted to get back to some of the other areas of health that we want to focus on. And one of those happens to be the incidence of peripheral artery disease. It impacts a lot of people in our country and in our region. And we're happy to welcome to our program a vascular surgeon here in the Tri-Cities at Cadillac, and that's Dr. Dale Wilson. And he joins us now live. Dr. Wilson, first of all, thanks for taking the time to be with us. Maybe for our listeners, just that that comment of peripheral artery disease, kind of a a mouthful to say, but in a nutshell, what is it? Yeah, thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me on. So um, it's really an all-encompassing disease. So most commonly, people are uh, most accustomed to hearing like heart disease, which is a component of peripheral artery disease. But actually, peripheral artery disease can affect really all the vessels in your body, um, to include the aorta, which is our primary and largest blood vessel in our body, to the blood vessels in our legs. So when someone, I guess, first of all, maybe what, who is most at risk of, of, of getting this and what kinds of things should people be looking for if they're concerned about it? Yeah. So, you know, uh, the thing that causes peripheral artery disease are uh, sort of diseases that are pretty prevalent in our uh, everyday community, and those are include 
high blood pressure. They include diabetes. Um, and certainly the other thing that is uh, predominantly is, is tobacco use, which is still, uh, although better, is still quite prevalent. Um, and it's really the combination of those things that leads to the development of uh, peripheral artery disease. Um, people can have all sorts of symptoms. Um, one of the common symptoms that we do see is something called claudication. Um, that by itself means to develop pain or discomfort cramping in one's legs with activity. And usually that can mean that someone has a blockage or a narrowing of a blood vessel that's limiting the amount of oxygen that they're getting to their, to their muscles, which can cause that cramping. So, so then what happens if, if they're feeling that? What kinds of testing is done to, to determine the extent and, and the diagnosis? Yeah, so the nice thing is, is that most of uh, the diagnosis can be done just by a simple exam. That exam can be done by their primary care physician, um, who then can refer them on to us in our office. There's also several non-invasive testing, um, such as ultrasounds, that can be done that can identify um, if someone has a blockage or has some concerning um, findings for peripheral artery disease. And so if someone has it to the extent where they need to call a vascular surgeon, then what do you do and, and what are the treatment options for patients? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, it, it really... Um, spans a whole broad spectrum. So sometimes it's as easy as us just keeping a, an eye on it and not having an intervention and just watching it closely, treating it with medication. Um, sometimes we uh, treat it with uh, minimally invasive techniques, um, like day, you know, that require just a, a day procedure. And other times we have to do something that's more involved and more complex. To, uh, such as a bypass. People are familiar with heart bypasses, but uh, vascular surgeons also do bypasses in the lower extremities and even sometimes in the upper extremities to establish better blood flow um, to the arm or the leg. And I know you touched on the, the, the risk factors, smoking and diet and, and lack of exercise and things, all preventable, right? Is it something that is also genetic or hereditary is that a is that uh for someone yeah. more facing that if they're if someone in their family has had it yeah yeah no absolutely so certainly genetics uh plays a component of it um uh, and really where that impacts people is really that cholesterol and that's probably the thing that people hear most uh most about uh, and that really falls in line with the heart disease. Certainly, if you have a family history um, of somebody uh, with heart disease or with peripheral artery disease, certainly you could be at increased risk for that. Um, that also falls in line with things more uh, complex like aortic aneurysms. Um, usually, if you have a family member, particularly a first-degree relative, like a parent, a sister, brother, that has an aortic aneurysm, we do know that those run in families. Um, and at some point, uh, a one-time screening with an ultrasound would be recommended. And I know that can be obviously very serious if it gets to that point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the nice thing uh, or the good thing about uh, peripheral artery disease is when identified early, uh, it's usually actually quite treatable. Um, when identified late, 
uh, it can be quite challenging to manage. It can have real consequences, uh, you know, for the patient. So if, if someone uh, is maybe feeling uh, guilty of some of these risk factors that you addressed, uh, <laughs> is it time to, before they need to get to see someone like you, is it time for them to take some action? Yeah, I mean, the, the good thing is, is that, as we talked about, much of it is preventable. Um, so things that we always encourage, I mean, tobacco use is a, is a, is a really tough problem. We, you know, m- most of us know somebody that uses tobacco, and it can be quite challenging um, to quit that. But we encourage people to talk to the primary care doctors to, to look at different methods that can help you uh, with tobacco cessation. Um you know, certainly diet and exercise play a big role in that. And then also just yearly checkups. I mean, that's one thing we tend to forget about sometimes, especially in this day and age, is that visiting your primary care doctor or, uh, again, we follow people long-term for these uh, issues. And just visiting with them even once a year can really help um, stave off any sort of more severe issues related to the disease. We're visiting with Dr. Dale Wilson, a vascular surgeon with Cadillac, and he practices at Cadillac Clinic and the vascular surgery arm of it. And if, if you'd like information with that practice, you can call area code 509-942-2479 to learn more about the services provided by vascular surgeons like Dr. Wilson. He is uh, going to stay with us for one more segment. We're going to learn a little bit more about what brought him to the Tri-Cities and how he's enjoying being in this community and um, what his advice for be as we've touched on some of the important information that we've already gleaned from him. But we'll get more into uh, depth about what it is like being a vascular surgeon with Dr. Wilson right after this. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Here again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Cadillac On Call, presented by the Cadillac Foundation, and we're visiting with Dr. Dale Wilson, a vascular surgeon with Cadillac here in the Tri-Cities. And when we bring on physicians like Dr. Wilson, we like to spend a little bit of time with them, getting about getting information on their background. And Dr. Wilson, if you would, maybe just a little bit about how long have you been in the Tri-Cities, what brought you to the community, and how do you like it since you've been here? I've been here for uh, about two and a half years now. Uh, you know, I grew up in the west side over in Tacoma, Washington, and uh, if you would have ever asked me, I would be living in the Tri-Cities, you know, I probably would, <laughs> would tell you no, but, you know, my wife and I came out here, and uh, we just fell in love with the community. Um, we just found it to be just a wonderful place to raise children, um, and we didn't mind losing the rain. You know, I, I did my training uh, over at the University of Washington and then Oregon Health and Science University in Portland. And, uh, you know, it, it was great, but uh, we were ready for a break with all the rain and gloom. So we, we've just been <laughs> thrilled being out here. Tell us a little bit about that training. Uh, you said you grew up in the Tacoma area. Did you, is it something you always wanted to be a physician or did it something that came maybe a little later in your uh, planning of your life? Yeah, I mean, for me, it came later in life. Um, 
So I, uh, I I went to Pacific Lutheran University in Tacoma uh, for my undergrad, and actually my undergraduate degree was in nursing. So I started my career in nursing, um, and uh, primarily did that in the military. I uh, was in the army uh, for a number of years, served in Iraq, um, and then uh, in Iraq, sort of decided that uh, I wanted to do something different, and really felt like my path in life. Uh, was more in terms of medicine uh, than nursing, um, but it really was nursing and being exposed to, to patients through that as a critical care nurse that that um, sort of, I guess, exposed me and led me uh, to this path. So you were, uh, thank you for your service, by the way, so you were, in essence, an ICU yeah. nurse in the Army, is that right? Yeah, yeah, I did that for uh, almost eight years. And and what was it like serving in Iraq? And and what kind of what kind of uh, what what was that? A little bit about that experience, if you would. Yeah, so so I was in a combat support hospital, um, served uh, for oh, I guess for a year, maybe a little bit more. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it, it, it sort of uh, it's nothing you expect. It's nothing you can experience until you're there. Um, but the impact that you get a, to not only on American soldiers, but you know, also on, uh, we treat many civilians when we're over there, and just the impact that you get to make on someone's life um, is just something you, you, you just can't replicate. Uh, so it's just so impactful for me and uh, just really started me on my path in terms of, uh, you know, going into medicine and ultimately uh, vascular surgery. Before I get back to your current state, I, when, I can't help but ask you if you worked in a combat hospital. You, I'm guessing you're following what's happening in Ukraine, and, and I'm guessing uh, you can uh, see very real uh, some of the work that's having to be done and in very difficult circumstances in some of those hospitals in Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, I, I could only imagine, uh, you know, the struggle that the uh, healthcare professionals have in terms of uh, treating patients over there. I mean, the, the limited supplies and resources and uh, you know, you, you do what you can with uh, what you have, but I, I just can only imagine the struggle that uh, those guys have in terms of really uh, helping people and saving lives over there. So as an ICU nurse in the Army and you decided to become a physician, why vascular surgery? And, and talk, walk us a little bit through about the training to become a vascular surgeon. Yeah, so there, there's a couple different pathways. My pathway involved uh, doing general surgery first, so I'm a board-certified general surgeon, and then uh, I completed a two-year fellowship uh, after general surgery that uh, allowed me to become board-certified in vascular surgery as well. Um, so in general, I mean, it's, it's pretty long. It's minus the medical school. It, it, it was seven years of training in terms of perfecting my craft. Um, so it takes time, uh, for sure. Um, for me, vascular surgery is really about the connection I get to have with my patients. Uh, and I think that stems from my nursing career is um, I get to have long-term follow-up. I get to have really long-term relationships over many years with my patients and uh, get to really follow them uh, throughout their life uh, to, to keep track of these problems and offer my services uh, to try to help them the best that I can. And you touched on it a little bit, but being a surgeon, a lot of people probably think, well, 
the only time you see the surgeon is if you have the have a surgery with that physician. But you sound like uh, not only do you do the actual surgical cases, but you also do the management of the patient over a sustained period of time. Yeah, I think that's what separates vascular surgeons from a lot of uh, surgical specialists and subspecialists is that we really do long-term follow-up. You know, you know, once you visit a vascular surgeon, you tend to stick with them for life because uh, these problems don't just go away. Um, you know, peripheral artery disease is a disease, but I tend to fix the problems associated with the disease. Um, you know, how to cure peripheral artery disease in general is still something that, uh, you know, many people are trying to work on to figure that part out. Um, so it's really those problems that the disease causes that I get to fix, and those require really long-term follow-up. That's what I was going to say. You you kind of get the best of both worlds and that you get to, to to experience, I guess, in many cases, the immediate fixing of the problem, but also develop those relationships over time and continue to keep them from needing further surgical care. Yeah, I mean, that that trust and relationship that you build with the patient is just irreplaceable. I mean, um, when you're following these patients, you know, my mentors would have patients for 20, 30 years, um, and they would see them every year, and a lot of times it was a a hello and catching up on life events, and uh, you just, it's hard to find that in a surgical specialty. Um, And so sometimes I try to tell people that I'm sort of the family practice doctor of surgical specialists, because... It's really that long-term care and follow-up that makes vascular surgery uh, unique and and special. And I was going to say just uh, one final question for you before we let you go. I would assume two things. One, your military training and your background as a nurse has made you a better doctor, a better surgeon? Yeah, I mean, I certainly think it was an invaluable experience. it certainly, I couldn't be here where I am today without having uh, done those things first in life. Uh, so, you know, I'm very thankful for the opportunity to, to be a nurse, and I'm very thankful for the opportunity that I was given to be able to serve my country. And you're very happy to be in the Tri-Cities, too. Yeah, I, I tell you, it really is it's a great community. Cadillac uh, is a great facility um, I really, you know, when I came out, I really aligned with their mission. Um, uh, I just really find it uh, thus far to just be a great situation. Well, it's been great to visit with you and learn a little bit more about you. Dr. Dale Wilson, a vascular surgeon here in the Tri-Cities at Cadillac Regional Medical Center. If you'd like more information or to connect with him and his office, you can call 509-942-2479 or find out more on Cadillac's website at cadillac.org. Our thanks to Dr. Wilson. Thanks to Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. And thank you for listening. We'll talk again next Wednesday.